I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Krishnadas Pilgrim Heart Hour. In this podcast, Krishnadas shares his warm-hearted and down-to-earth path to the divine. If you are interested in supporting Krishnadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/kd. Hi. Hi. Um, I had a question about partnership. And if the husband or in wife... business? No, no. In marriage. Oh, if the business. Husband or, yeah. <laughs> the husband or wife is not on the same, similar path, and it causes a divide. Mm-hmm. You know, because I've heard that your husband or the wife, the partner, can be the home guru, but, you know, and teach patients when they leave the toilet seat up, whatever it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but what if you're not on the same or similar path and it causes a divide. You know, I, 
Like they don't have one that is same human longing. and one's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, I don't know. I, I had a friend who used to chant with me a lot. A woman who came quite often, and um, she said uh, she said that she and her husband weren't getting along, and they were probably going to get divorced. I said, "Really? What's going on?" She said, "Well, you know." I love your chanting so much that I play it in every room of the house all the time. I see. Turn it the fuck off. <laughs> They're still married. You know? <laughs> um, what people... Uh, from. Uh, my mind boggles a little bit at the what people think think is a spiritual path. You know, you got to be a human being. You know, that's that's our first job. How do we get to be good human beings? And if you can't be a good human being with your partner, well, that's probably the most difficult thing there is. So, you get this inner strength from spiritual work to be a real person, not to not to develop a spiritual ego. I'm on this path and you're not. You know, that you're doing something wrong. That's, that's, not, that's not helpful. That's not true. Um, so I don't really know. I mean, it sounds like there might be some other problems there lurking other than what particular guru you have. And I think probably that's where the problems are, not what you think your spiritual path is. Obviously, no communication skills going on. We should work on that. You know? I mean, every, we're in relationship to everyone and everything all the time. And our, the people that we're in relationship with, you know, if they don't feel loved, then you're not doing something right. And then you're not, whatever your path is, you're not even on it. If you, if you can't be with a, a, your partner in a good way, not you, but if one can't be with their partner in, in a good way, then first of all, your, your spiritual work isn't working and you need to see uh, counseling. Develop some skills of talking to each other. Forget what you think you believe, you know, spiritually. Be a person first, you know. That's what we are. And all this spiritual stuff is to give us the strength to be good human beings. What's a good human being? One who has caring and kindness and compassion. So if your spiritual path is dividing you from your your partner, something's wrong there. Neither one of you is doing very good with it. So I I I would, you know... Stop thinking about your spiritual path and start thinking about being a good person and developing some talking to someone. You know, unraveling the projections we put on other people. This is what we get the strength to do through practice, through spiritual practice, because we start to unravel our own projections and then we can see what we're putting on other people.
People have to learn to talk. It's very difficult to talk without accusations and anger and, you know, wounded egos and stuff. It's very difficult. Hey, Kitty. How are you? I'll be good, I promise. Don't promise me. I won't promise anybody then. Um, the guy who was talking about surfing and being a surfer. and a what? The guy before who was talking about su- that he likes to surf, the waves, the water. That yeah, was a while yeah. ago, but yeah, it's still yeah. sticking in me because yeah. my father was a really, really good swimmer. I mean, and I remember as a little girl, I grew up in the Rockaways, not far from where you lived. And um, I'd wait for him to come home at night, and he would, I'd carry his towel down to the beach, and that would be like the biggest thing I could possibly do was carry his towel. So I carried his towel down to the beach, and I'd sit on his towel, and I'd watch him swim all the way out. I mean, so far out. I, I get so scared, and I get so worried because I wasn't sure if he's going to come back. And he did. He came back, and then he would take me all the way out there past the breakers, and I had to ask him, but, but Dad, what if I get a wave comes and carries me away? And he always told me that if a wave comes and carries you away, you can't fight the wave. You have to go with the wave. If you fight the wave, it'll break your neck. If you go with the wave, you'll end up peacefully on the beach. Or in China. Or in China. Not actually, because that that's, would have been a little far from uh, Rockaway Shore, but <laughs> okay, Africa. And I would have been pretty crusty by that time. But, you know, it's, it's, it, I never thought of it that much when he was alive. But after he passed away, it's been like a really important piece of my life because it's taught me that you also can forgive the wave and you can let it go. Because that, that was, for the longest time, my biggest problem was forgiveness and letting go. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, thanks for telling me to retire. I appreciate it. Did I tell you to retire? Yes, you did. Two mm-hmm. years ago, right here. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> when are you retiring? Next life. Nah. <laughs> what am I going to retire from? I already don't do anything. Then why are you so tired? <laughs> I watch too much TV, that's all. I just wonder if we know very much about Maharaji's early life. Um, We know a little bit. Uh, I spent time with his grandson recently, uh, my last trip to India. He's one of the most decorated fighter pilots in the Indian Air Force. Amazing. He's an incredible being, so beautiful. Maharaji was... Uh, born in a, a little town called Akburpur. His father was a landowner. His mother died when he was young, and his father married again. And his stepmother didn't treat him very well. And so at, at an early age, maybe around 10 or so, shortly after he had been betrothed to a, a young girl, uh, he disappeared and went to the jungle. And uh, after some years, they found him and brought him home. And uh, he got married at that point. And uh, I believe he disappeared again for quite a while. And then he came back 
and he lived at home for a while. Uh, he had two sons and a daughter. And uh, he used there, they say there was a period of, of quite a few years that he never went out of the house in this little village. But that people would come to the village, sadhus and people, and, not, and go right to the house and knock on the door and ask to talk to him. And he, they would come in and they would speak with Maharaji for a while and then leave. And this would go on day after day, year after year. And no one ever thought it was unusual. Maharaji used to say things like, I have the keys to the mind. You know? And he used to say to us, I can turn your minds against me. And we would go, don't do that. And he would laugh, you know. So whatever, so like at that time, people would kept coming to the village to see him. But nobody in the village thought it was unusual that this guy who sat in his house all the time, anybody would even know he was there. But it went on for years like that. Um, And then he stayed around the village pretty much until his daughter got married. And then after that, he started to leave for very long periods and only come home uh, for very short periods of time, very irregularly. No, Almost nobody, none of the devotees of Neem Karoli Baba knew that he was even married and had a family. No one knew. But you know, Every once in a while, all of a sudden, Maharaji would get up and he'd go sit on this, the roof of the, this dharmsala in the back of the temple. Big flat roof in those days. And he'd sit in the very middle and he wouldn't let anyone come. And then a car would arrive at the front at the temple and two guys would walk into the temple. They'd walk right through the front of the temple, through the back of the temple, right up to the roof, sit with Maharaji and talk for a while, then leave. And they wouldn't look at anybody or talk to anybody. And it turned out it was his son and his nephew. And they were coming for instructions what to do. He would tell them what to plant, when to plant it, where to take it to sell, what to charge, everything. He was running the whole show 24-7. And no one knew. A few people knew. But not many. Um... I just went to, he got his name from this village called Nib Karori is the way it's pronounced there. And what happened is at some point in the 1920s when he was probably maybe in his early 20s, something like that. I don't really know exactly. Maybe he uh, went, went to this village and he asked the villagers to build, to dig out a cave for him in the middle of this field. And he lived in this cave for about five years, and no one ever saw him came out, come out. And then somehow or other, another cave developed. I don't know, maybe he dug it himself at night or something, and about 100 yards away, and there's a tunnel that goes from one cave to the other tunnel, underground. We just, Arjun and I just went to this place on our last visit. While he was alive, he wouldn't let anyone go to this village. But after he left the body, Siddhima went there and people started to go. Um, yeah. At some point he came up to the mountains and uh, he lived on the plains for a long time. But in the late 30s or 
mid forties, she started to come up to the mountains and meet. He met this whole generation of people when they were young. And then he disappeared and came back years later when they were older. And then they all became his devotees. Like he met Mr. Tuari when he was a boy. He used to, he was completely double jointed. He used to be able to put his arms on the ground like this, you know, from the elbow like this and do a complete somersault without taking his elbows up. So he used to do this for the school kids and then they would give him some food <laughs> from their school lunches. And one time he took, he took Mr. Tuari's lunch and he ate it and Tuari slapped him. And, uh, 20 years later when Maharaji came back and said, remember when you slapped me? So, they, they think he spent about a total of eight years in these caves. No one knows who his guru is. He never talked about his guru. Watch TV. <laughs> what else do you do in a cave? He had a, there was a, a village woman who used to bring him a glass of milk every day. That's what he lived on, one glass of milk. And she would leave it outside the cave in the morning. And she died. And uh, he was starving to death. So he came out of his cave, apparently, and took a stick and threatened... Hanuman, you're going to starve me to death, I'll beat you. And then from the next day on, somebody just would leave me milk there. <laughs> so many stories. I, one of the devotees told me that Maharaj used to take him and uh, they would drive near to near his village, his home village, because later on, because his father had been a big landowner, and so he inherited all that land. And he was... He was like the, the official of the village. And the official used to wear a particular type of uh, shirt and a dhoti and a kurta and uh, dress a particular way. And Maharaji used to just wear a blanket, you know. So this devotee said they drove near to near the village and the, the driver left them there and they walked through the jungle to the village. By the time they got to the village, he looked at Maharaji and he was his clothes had completely changed. And he walked around the village greeting everybody and everybody said hello. And then they left. And by the time they got back to the car, he was back in his blanket. And apparently nobody in the village noticed that he wasn't there much. Once again, he had the keys to the mind. Very strange. They thought, well, he's always here. That's because he wanted him to think that. He wandered and wandered. He lived, he slept out on the road in the, the rain culverts, you know, these big uh, cement things for rainwater. He wandered through the jungle. He had no home. He went from town to town, place to place, village to village, house to house. It was only later, the last, the last years of his life, that the temples started to be built so that the devotees could gather and see him. Otherwise, it was impossible to find him. But he always showed up when you needed him. He was there.
and his wife, he had, uh, his oldest son had eight daughters or five daughters. And some of the Westerners met his wife, Maharaji's wife. And uh, she said, ah, he's no saint. Wait, if his son, if I have a grandson, then he can be a saint. Because in India, the, all the property and everything's handed down through the male side of the family to the boys. So the family name is a big thing there. We didn't know where he was from. We didn't know where he was going. All we wanted to do was look at him. We just, our eyes would not close. We just stared. It was all the beauty in the universe was shining, sparkling, radiating right in front of us. And we couldn't, we couldn't take our eyes off of it. It was impossible. You, would, you just couldn't. You didn't want to, and you couldn't. When he would say go, it was like getting a, no. And he would laugh because you know, he knew. He said, my mantra is, go away. <laughs> One time we were sitting with him. Radha, you remember, this was you. You did this. We were sitting with him in the room. He, the bus had come, and we had been in the back of the temple. The bus had come. There was a regular public service government bus that regular human beings took. And they were on, this bus was the last bus that would come out of the mountains and go to the town where we were staying. The driver was a devotee, so he would stop at the temple and wait for the Westerners to pick up, to get jowed, sent away by Maharaji, pick up the things, get on the bus. Otherwise, we'd we'd be stuck at the temple, and the driver knew that Maharaji didn't want us there. So there were people sitting on the bus waiting for us, you know. So we get the message, bus has come. Ah, so we went to see Maharaji, jow, jow. So we, this particular day, we went in the room and we sat down. It was something unusual. It was like, I felt like a, I don't know, when you were a kid, did you ever make jello? You know, and you put like a piece of fruit in the jello and it kind of suspended in the jello, you know what I mean? That's what it felt like. We were sitting in this room, the, the atmosphere was so thick. And so deep, nobody could move, nobody could talk. And Maharaji also was just sitting there like like that, you know? And he would look at us and say, Jow, go. And nobody would move. And he's just like, he would disappear again, you know? And we would just sit there, ah. And then he kind of opened his eyes and he'd see us, Jow. Like this. This went on for a long time. Then somebody said, Maharaji, what is this? And that was it. The spell had been broken. He went, ah. He said, no, it's, it's in the blood. Now get out of here. Go, 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 go. And we really had to go. Because this was the big jowl. There was no, you know, the little jowls. Go, go, go. And you could avoid that. But once you said, Joe, there you you knew you had to go. It's in the blood, he said. What does that mean? It's in the blood? 
What is he, some kind of Christian mystic? The blood of Christ? What is he talking about? It's in the blood. He used to say, you know, the same blood runs through everyone's veins. It's one family. All, all beings, one family. 